Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. As states are starting to see a surge in cases of coronavirus, they're hitting the pause button on reopening their economies, and bars are one of the first things that be shut down again. Several Texas bar owners have filed a lawsuit against Governor Greg Abbott over his order to shut down the bars for the second time since the pandemic began. Bar owners feel like they're being unfairly targeted when restaurants that serve alcohol can remain open. For more on this story, we'll speak to Sarah Blaskovich, reporter at the Dallas Morning News. There's a group of, they say more than 30 bar owners in Dallas, Fort Worth, and some of its suburbs, and they feel unfairly targeted. So their idea here is that sitting in a bar while following social distancing guidelines isn't different than sitting in a restaurant, yet their bar can't be open and a restaurant can. So what they told me when I interviewed them for the Dallas Morning News is that they're asking for fair treatment in this lawsuit. If restaurants can be open at 50% capacity, let's say they want bars to be open at 50% capacity. And instead, what has happened is the governor has shut down all bars that sell 51% or more of their gross sales receipts are from alcohol. So basically, a majority of their sales come from booze. And it's an interesting dilemma for these people because they can't make any money. Most of these places don't do takeout either because a majority of or all of their business is from alcohol. And they just say it's not fair. And some of the reasoning that they're using, they're comparing themselves to nail salons and barbershops and saying, well, you know, some of these places have so much more points of contact with people that they have the same amount of risk or maybe even more. But part of it is not really that part. It's not the contact necessarily from the business owners. It's the people because they're congregating in these places. And we've heard more about how coronavirus spreads. And it's in places with bad air ventilation, sitting with people for long periods of time, talking loudly, spreading the virus that way. It's those ways that the virus is spreading. So that's why bars are being targeted in this. The bar owners I talk to say that they're following the same rules as everybody else. So they suggest that there aren't people elbow to elbow at the bars like there would have been six months ago. They say that bars have tables, too, and that they can move their tables six feet apart. Now, whether they're actually doing that and whether patrons will follow what they say is a whole different deal. And we've seen a lot of news reports and some politicians have said young people are the ones who are spreading this because they're hanging out in bars too close to one another. And whether that's true or not, it's really, really hard to prove. These bar owners say, we're not doing those things, and yet we still can't make money. The lawsuit is a $10 million federal lawsuit. They're looking for some damages there, but they're also looking for an injunction to the order. What have they said about the order itself? Because the governor in a few days, maybe after the 4th of July weekend, and say, okay, you know, bars can open back up again or something like that. And going through the lawsuit is a pretty lengthy process, a difficult process, too. What have they said regarding that? The lawsuit you're referring to is not in Dallas specifically. It's in another part of Texas. But this shows us there's more than one group of bar owners who are interested in suing the governor and TABC and other folks for this reason. But sure, the lawyer I talked to who's going to file the lawsuit in Dallas-Fort Worth this week, but he hasn't done it quite yet, I asked him that exact question. Well, what happens if this takes a year? 
And they basically said they think it's the right thing to do because they don't want to sit back and do nothing. So, in fact, one bar owner's quote was, quote, we're not willing to sit by idly while this happens. We won't be treated unfairly. Now, realistically, will this come to pass and change the governor's mind? That's probably not how the legal system is going to work in this way. But it's a way that they believe their voice is getting heard. The bar industry in Texas employs over 800,000 people. I know that there's been a few protests from some bar owners and people that work at them. How have those played out? That has been really interesting here in Texas, in my opinion, and people are taking it in different directions. We saw one bar in Burleson, Texas, which is kind of near Fort Worth. The bar invited customers out on Sunday afternoon to their parking lot, and they fed them water and Cokes because they can't pour any alcohol because bars are shut down. And those bar patrons just held signs that said all kinds of stuff about how they want to keep the bar open. Some of those people were socially distanced as they held those signs. Most of them were wearing masks. But that was how that one bar dealt with it. Other bars, like we've been talking about, have decided they want to be part of a lawsuit. One bar in Richardson, Texas, which is just north of Dallas, they just decided they were going to stay open even though the governor said they couldn't. And in fact, posted that to Facebook. And so TABC, which is the Texas Alcoholic Beverage Commission, came and shut them down. (laughs) You know, you can't stay open when the governor (laughs) says that you're shut down. So bar owners are really reacting here in lots of different ways. Sarah Blaskovich, reporter at the Dallas Morning News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Nice to be here. In other coronavirus news, the drug maker Gilead has set the price for remdesivir, its antiviral drug which has been shown to be an effective treatment for COVID-19. For people on private insurance, it will cost $3,120 for a five-day treatment. For more on the costs of treating COVID-19, we'll speak to Zachary Brennan, reporter at Politico. Gilead put out a press release early this morning um, basically explaining how for those on certain government programs through uh, the United States federal government, they'll be paying $2,340 for a five-day course of treatment or $390 per vial. Um, and then if you're using private insurance in the U.S., you'd pay $3,120 for a five-day course of treatment um, or about $520 per vial. Why is the United States getting this two, these two different prices? So according to Gilead, um, the price difference is because they basically claim that it's the way that the U.S. system is set up um, and the the way that... HHS explained it on the media call this morning was that the VA was able to negotiate the price down um, considerably or 33% from the, the price that'll be for, you know, people covered under private insurance. And the interesting thing that is associated with this, and uh, I think they, they brought it up in the, in the House before, is that the United States has a stake in this already through the National Institutes of Health. We've run clinical trials on this. We've helped pay for some of the development on this. So that's kind of another wrinkle in this, uh, you know, with why we're getting two different prices. Yeah, exactly. So um, NIAID, which is a division of the National Institutes of Health, ran the major study um, that basically established the efficacy of remdesivir. So there have been several lawmakers, several Democratic lawmakers, who are basically calling this price outrageous and saying, you know, it needs to be subsidized further because of the amount of taxpayer funding that went into, uh, you know, the development of this drug. 
for Gilead for their part that say that on average though this could reduce hospital costs by twelve thousand dollars a patient, and this is because in the study remdesivir was said to reduce a hospital stay for a person by about four days. And I guess they averaged about $3,000 a day for a hospital visit. So they're saying that it's saving everybody 12000 bucks. Yeah, exactly. And, and Secretary Azar is really kind of playing up that 12000 number. Um, and some of the other biotech analysts are basically saying, you know, Gilead invested over a billion dollars in the development and manufacturing of this drug. And, you know, again, Gilead also donated... 1.5 million doses of the drug prior to setting this price. So, uh, you know, there's a, there's a strong push from investors to kind of recoup more of what Gilead has put in. So, so up until now, that was one of my questions, who's paying for it right now? Up until now, this has all been donated by them. Correct. Oh, yeah. interesting. Uh, so how is this whole thing going to work? The health department and the states are going to be managing how this is all uh, allocated. Right. So, As they did um, with the previous donated doses, um, HHS is working with Gilead's distributor, uh, Amerisource Bergen, and basically deciding what states should be allocated what number of doses based on an algorithm on, you know, how many coronavirus cases are taking place each week and each month, and then they're shipping the doses to the states via Marisource Bergen, and then the states are basically deciding how to divvy up the doses per hospital. And so what's next uh, for all of this? Now that this price is set, you know, a lot of people were saying that this is kind of, since there's, this is one of the first drugs that's shown to prove effective, they're kind of setting a bar. Yeah, they de- they definitely are setting a bar. Um, I guess the the main difference between this and dexamethasone is dexamethasone is a you know cheap generic, so none of the generic firms are going to be setting prices for this. But um, there are other you know possibly better molecules that are coming out that are in development in clinical trials right now. There's you know a certain class of drugs called antibodies that could prove to be very effective and could also be priced, you know, quite high. Um, but yeah, again, I, I think Gilead really sets the bar here with deciding on this price. And it, it's very unique, especially in the fact that Gilead hasn't even won full FDA approval for remdesivir yet, right? They're still working under this emergency use authorization. Zachary Brennan, reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Finally, for this week, the front runner in the race to develop a vaccine is a company called Moderna. They will be entering the third phase of clinical trials this month with about 30,000 people participating. And while there's a lot of hope riding on Moderna to come through, the company has no track record in developing an approved drug and is also using an unproven approach to making the vaccine. For more information on frontrunner Moderna, we'll speak to Peter Loftus, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. This is a biotech company that was started about 10 years ago, and they're still in what you would call the development phase of the company in the sense that they do have multiple drugs and vaccines that they're working on, whether it's in the labs or even in clinical trials in patients to test them, but they've never actually received approval to sell one of these drugs. So going into this year, they were working on, I think, more than 20 different drugs and vaccines for various diseases, including cancer and infectious diseases. But they were still a good two to four years away from being in a position to have their first 
product on the market. So then what changed, obviously, was the pandemic, and they eventually got involved in developing a coronavirus vaccine, as you mentioned. And if it's successful, that holds the possibility of being their first product. And so it's an interesting situation because they are a relatively young company using an unproven drug development technology, and they're sort of jockeying with these bigger, more established companies that do have more of a track record of vaccines and drugs in this global chase for a coronavirus vaccine. Tell me a little bit more about this experimental development technique that they're using, because the way they're doing it, they're using mRNA, messenger RNA, to develop their vaccine. The other two front runners for vaccines right now are one from Oxford and AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson. They're expected to start some of their later trials later this year, I think August and September. But they're doing it kind of the classic way where you get like a little piece of the virus or, or a dead part of the virus. And then, you know, it kind of makes the immune system respond to that. So the Moderna vaccine works in a slightly different way. How does theirs work? I just need to clarify that the way that the vaccines from Oxford and AstraZeneca, as well as Johnson & Johnson, they're actually not the old traditional way of making vaccines. They do use virus material, but what they actually do is take a common cold virus and they weaken it so that it's not really going to infect anybody. But it serves as sort of a carrier to get some of the DNA from the coronavirus into the human body, into human cells, and that sort of sets off a cascade of events that is supposed to provide immunity. That's actually a relatively new technology, and there haven't been a ton of vaccines based on that. So I just want to make that clear. But it is different from what Moderna is up to. And what Moderna is up to is basically using a genetic code as the basis for its vaccine. And so in their case, they're using what they call messenger RNA or mRNA that is part of the genetic code from a protein that's found on the surface of the coronavirus. And what they do is they inject that into people. And once that gets into the human body, it instructs human cells to basically make that protein or make a close copy of that protein. And then that then triggers an immune response. So that sort of makes the immune system think that the coronavirus is present. And then the immune system builds up defenses that theoretically would then prepare a person for when they're actually exposed to the virus in the future, although that part still has yet to be proven. So there's it's two different styles, and Moderna's, they use the RNA-based approach, and this type of technology really has not been seen in any approved or licensed drug or vaccine to date. All of the work right now being done on vaccines with regards to coronavirus has been moving at lightning speed compared to the past and how things have been done before. Let's say the trials go well. Let's say we are getting good immune responses. Let's say there's not many side effects and it's actually working. How quickly would we be able to get that out to the masses? Because I think I read in the article that, you know, the CEO is confident that if it works, maybe in the fall they could have some emergency uses of the vaccine for frontline healthcare workers and things like that. But to manufacture it and to get it out to the public in mass, how long would that take? An aspect of the lightning speed is that a lot of companies, and with the help of governments and other organizations, they basically started to manufacture doses of their various vaccines before they've proven whether they work or not. And so 
that's different from normal vaccine development. Normally, it's, it's more of a serial step. So I think that it's a very optimistic and hopeful view that some of these companies have, that there could be preliminary results and data from these big clinical trials within a few months that might show whether they work. So therefore, the U.S. government using its public health emergency powers could say, we think we have enough data to allow one or more of the vaccines to be used, but maybe at first on a limited basis, like let's give it to healthcare workers first. So that's a possibility. I think there are people who are skeptical of that and feel like it's going to take longer than that to really get a clear answer about whether these vaccines are safe and effective. And yes, and then the manufacturing also is an issue in the sense that while there might be some initial doses that could start to be given to healthcare workers, it still probably will take much longer to really scale up production and have enough to just vaccinate the whole country or vaccinate a good percentage of the globe. Well, I mean, it's going to be a huge summer for vaccine development as this trial is going to go through and others are going to start. Tell me a little bit about Moderna, the company, because now they're worth about $24 billion. Their CEO is a billionaire as well. The country and the world's hopes are kind of pinned on them right now to be the first one to finish developing the vaccine so that we can hopefully get back to normal again. Uh, So tell me a little bit about the company and the culture there. The CEO is Stefan Bonsell, and he has been leading the company pretty much from the start, I think since 2011. And for many years, it sort of labored in obscurity in the sense that it was not a household name. Since it didn't have any products on the market, it was really only familiar to people in biotech circles or people who invested in biotech. And so its mission has been to take this concept of using mRNA to develop treatments and vaccines for a number of diseases. And so it's sort of grown steadily at first through private investments. And then eventually at the end of 2018, it had an IPO and raised a fair amount of money. So it's more in the public eye. But for the first year or so, really through the end of last year, the stock was kind of in a limited range and not really doing anything outstanding. And yes, it's really, it's been this year and mostly because of its work on the coronavirus vaccine, that it's just generated a lot more interest and with that, a big increase in stock price and value. What we talked about in our article, what we reported, was um, a company culture that was not only focused on really trying to develop this new way of making drugs and vaccines, but also a real hard-charging culture, very high expectations, very demanding requiring a lot of hours from workers and what you could call sharp or blunt critiques of workers if they weren't meeting management's expectations. So this has motivated some employees to do better, but others don't see that as their cup of tea and have left. And so for a number of reasons, including that culture, I think it's been a subject of debate that the company has in the eyes of people who work in the industry as well as investors. Peter Loftus, Reporter for the Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this 
was your daily dive weekend edition. 